we're starting where psychoanalysis starts, and that's with hysteria and trauma. Okay. Um, <coughs> and with a, uh, a kind of transformation in Freud, uh, the scientific researcher, uh, who was uh, brought up in Vienna in a very hardline physicalist school uh, where all forms of uh, <coughs> brain malfunction had to be explained by um, some sort of physical damage, however small, uh, to brain tissues. And it was, of course, a, a, the period where medical science is making huge numbers of discoveries about uh, the central nervous system, the relationship of the brain uh, to the spine to the, and to the cerebral cortex uh, and to the ways in which um, nervous impulses are transmitted uh, across the body and are centralized um, through the spinal cord and in the, in the cerebral cortex in the brain. And that was very much the perspective Freud was committed to. He, was, he worked in laboratories cutting up small creatures um, uh, and, uh, uh, and trying to establish the, the physical structure of the, of the nervous system. Okay. Um, now, um, he goes to Paris. <laughs> to study with Charcot very briefly. Charcot was very, very famous. He did more or less stabilized areas of study within medicine in the 19th century. Uh, and in particular, uh, there's a whole series of diseases which, and syndromes which to, these, to this day are called Charcot's joints or Charcot's syndrome or whatever. He, he, he mapped and named clusters of symptoms. Uh, and he presided over the great hospital in Paris of La Salpetriere, which still exists. Um, which was huge complex, in which there were something like 3,000, I think, um, permanent, um, inca uh, not incarcerated, well, maybe incarcerated inhabitants. Uh, the residential population were all women, but the, uh, uh, the um, outpatients had male, uh, admitted male patients. Uh, and these, uh, many of these people lived there for 20 or 30 years. They were considered to be, in some sense, mentally disturbed or deranged, and Charcot plotted um, correlations between developments of, uh, of disabling symptoms, whether it was um, seizures or fits or various malfunctions of the body. Um, and when they died, he cut them up and, and, and you know, as it were, uh, described the, what, what he, thinks, he thought was the, the physical causation of, uh, of the various symptoms that he had actually grouped together. And he was able to distinguish uh, uh, and, and map things in a way that was uh, quite riveting. So Freud, of course, wants to go and study with him. But when Freud arrives, he's, Charcot is extremely interested in the group of phenomena that were labeled as hysteria. And um, <clears throat> he was involved in an argument with various German uh, researchers and doctors who claimed that, um, in particular, um, <coughs> trauma what we today would call post-traumatic uh, stress disorder, um, the after-effects of physical traumas, and particularly accidents, and uh, train accidents, or workplace accidents, etc., are often the case, um, could, be, uh, could be grouped as a form of hysteria. And the Germans resisted this idea, and Charcot was, was pushing it very, very strongly. Um, the, the, uh, the opposite position was to say, the, uh, the puzzle that, that uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or, or, or trauma, traumatic neurosis posed was that often the symptoms didn't develop till some time afterwards. 
And so if there was a physical damage, how could that be? If somebody was involved in an accident and got up and walked away and then developed paralysis of the leg three months or a month later, how could that have been caused by any physical damage sustained? Okay. And this became a legal and financial question because insurance companies were saying, no, we, do, we are not responsible for this person's paralysis a month after the accident in which they were involved. Okay. Um, and so there's a real, it's a highly contested hot issue uh, in the 1880s. Um, now, the move that, that, that Chaco makes is to say, uh, this is a form of hysteria caused by the psychological after-effects of physical shock. And that takes some time to incubate. Um, so there's a delayed or postponed formation uh, of certain symptoms, that, symptoms in and on the body. Um, but it's caused by a psychological state, which itself was caused by um, the physical impact of the accident. And this is a form of hysteria. And he wants to group what he's calling traumatic hysteria with common Con, um, constitutional hysteria. Um, now, <clears throat> behind this is a whole history uh, around the notion of hysteria, which goes back to the Greeks. Uh, it comes from the Greek word hysteron, which means womb. And right up into the 20th century, different branches of medicine had rival accounts of it. The gynecologists claimed hysteria was a female um, uh, condition caused by the um, uh, gynecological problems. And uh, if you look at Galen or very early Greek medical uh, uh, treatises, they talk about the womb, the wandering womb. And if you can see this in, in, in actually in Shakespeare. When King Lear goes mad, he talks, he, he says he's, what he's undergoing is the hyst hysterica passio. Uh, um, the, and he, he talks about the womb. Um, of course, he doesn't have a physical womb. Um, uh, and he feels it to be down, down, you rising mother, he, he, he says to himself or to his own body or his own, his own mental, physical state. Um, of course, that, was a, that might have been considered then as a sign of his madness because he was a man. So how could he experience these, these things? But that, it's a little example of the ways in which hysteria was, in some discourses, very much signaled as, as female. Uh, okay. Some uh, French thinkers, and indeed some English thinkers, had begun to see that the, the bodily malfunctioning um, that often got labelled as hysteria could be found in men, but it was extremely controversial. And the ingrained nature that this is a female condition um, uh, was very, very strong. Um, and uh, therefore, people often didn't want to set they were really angry with Charcot for saying post-traumatic delayed symptom formation was hysterical because that, particularly as uh, a, lot of, uh, a lot of workplace accidents, etc., were, were, were um, invariably male. Um, and, there's a, and Charcot's underlining the anomaly of this. You know, somebody who doesn't have a hysterical constitution, who, who is thoroughly masculine uh, and a vigorous worker, you know, somehow starts producing symptoms like a hysterical woman. How can this be, as it were? Um, and so the gendering of hysteria is thrown into question very much by, by, by Charcot. And Freud is very interested, riveted, and indeed scandalized when he sees uh, Charcot hypnotizing people in public lectures uh, and removing their symptoms through a hypnotic suggestion or changing their symptoms, suggesting new symptoms to them. 
or somebody would come in paralyzed down the right side, ostensibly as the result of an accident. Um, he would hypnotize them and switch the paralysis to the other side and then wake them up. Freud was scandalized. How can this be? Because it, 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 it introduces a disconnection between mental states and physical causes and the ways in which mental states can be acted out nevertheless through the body without necessarily being caused by bodily damage, as it were. Okay. And so Freud's fascinated and, and shocked, and his basic assumptions, um, his physicalist materialism, um, is called into question by what Charcot is doing. So he goes back to Vienna, an absolutely committed Charcotian, uh, <coughs> which includes a notion that um, <clears throat> was central to a lot of Charcot's work of inherited, inherited dispositions, inherited dispositions to, to hysteria or to other... Um, other neuroses, okay. Um, now, the, these in, uh, Freud doesn't break immediately with this notion of inherited constitutions, okay. Um, but he increasingly wants to push, decenter it and push it to the margins to allow a space for other causes. Um, and particularly, he wants to, he becomes more and more skeptical about the notion of uh, an, an inherited hysterical constitution uh, in the family line, uh, which is an absolutely dominant paradigm in 19th century thought. And only at the end of the century was it, was it being called seriously into question. Um, and in some of the texts we're looking at, uh, uh, he's. Um, He's, he's saying, actually, a condition like hysteria can be uh, acquired without uh, an inherited disposition. Now, Charcot you know, allowed for, obviously, he's interested in trauma, that trauma, physical traumas and the state of shock produced by them um, play a role in, in, in hysteria. Uh, indeed, he, he, he categorized them as traumatic hysteria, not just traumatic neurosis. Um, or post-trauma uh, damage, as it were. Um, but he sees the role of the trauma as merely activating what's already there, that is to say, the predisposition. And he, he says there's a range of things of which physical traumas might be one, um, which he calls agent provocateur. Uh, and this is, this is uh, the term agent provocateur is very much in circulation in Europe in the late 19th century because it refers to terrorists who are planting bombs or... Or, or, or committing political acts of political violence, etc., attempting to stir up pre-existing discontents by some exemplary violent action, as it were. Um, and so he, Charcot sees the things that Freud is increasingly becoming interested in as being merely agent provocateur, important, but what they do is they activate something that's been inherited. Now, Freud argues very strongly that if you allow for the possibility of acquired hysteria, then how do you know it's in, uh, there's an inherited disposition? You can trace the family tree and say the uncle was obsessional and the aunt was hysterical and the mother was uh, neurasthenic, etc., etc. You can do all that, but how do you know that, that those things that you're thinking of as being somehow or other um, genetically encoded or inherent weren't themselves acquired? And the minute you allow for the notion of, of something being acquired, uh, then it, it starts to undermine um, 
the notion of the of the um, of the hereditary disposition, and indeed, um, there, and there are a number of other problems which I won't go into about uh, how you were to understand the way in which hereditary dispositions choose certain diseases and not others, and why some members of the family get it and others don't, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there's a nest of problems there, and <clears throat> Freud increasingly calls into question the notion of this hereditary predisposition. Um, and one sees him doing that in the course of the papers that we're looking at this, this week. Okay. And in particular, it, he, in the um, Breuer and Freud paper on the psychical mechanism of hysterical phenomena, the preliminary communication of 1893, which they published as an essay together, and then it, it's the introduction to studies on hysteria um, of 1895. And they, they pay tribute to Charcot, and uh, Freud, for the rest of his life, had a photograph of Charcot above his consulting couch. Charcot was the master. And at the same time, he is, he is uh, gradually, step by step, calling into question um, some of the main elements of, uh, of Charcot's theoretical model. Um, but he pays fulsome tribute to Charcot. But in a way, if you read carefully that essay with Breuer, he's in a sense doing the opposite of what Charcot did, conceptually. Charcot said, are these puzzling examples of uh, delayed and uh, belated uh, symptom formation a month, two months after the physical trauma, um, that they're a form of hysteria caused by shock and, and the process of psychological uh, incubation needs to take place and they reactivate an inherited um, uh, predisposition. Um, but a, there is a, a tension between his notion of the hereditary disposition and his interest in the state of shock and the fact that certain ideas are excluded from consciousness in that state of shock. So you can see the germ of the idea, of the, the later Freudian idea of the unconscious, but it's, but it's simply one subordinate element among others there. Um, now, what Freud and Breuer are doing, in a sense, is saying, not I'm subsuming all these traumatic conditions under the, under the heading of hysteria, but the reverse. I'm taking all these forms of hysteria and saying behind hysteria there is always a traumatic event. Okay, so he's subsuming the hysterias, the various forms of hysteria under the general rubric of trauma, whereas what Charcot had done was the opposite. He had subsumed post-traumatic disorders under the heading of hysteria. They can sound as if it's the same thing, but the logic is a different is a different logic. Not least because things that were, you know, the forms of common or constitution or inherited bracket, usually thought of as female. Uh, hysteria, um, and often inherited in the female line, that people sometimes said, um, were actually the effect of, of, of traumatic experiences. Okay? So trauma becomes the central causal uh, mechanism for understanding a whole range of disorders that are now grouped together in one category, as it were. And that's what Breuer and Freud are doing in uh, the 1893 paper I've asked you to read. On the, and this, on the psychical mechanism of hysterical phenomena. And that's very important um, because he sees, uh, and the, uh, what's being, uh, what is pathogenic uh, is not just the ex first experience itself, uh, but the, uh, the, 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 the psychological after effects of that experience. Because it's not something that you can just ask somebody about uh, and they produce an easy answer. Sometimes they will say, Freud's technique originally was just to say, when did this symptom first appear? Think your way back into it. 
you know, when did it happen? And people would produce, sometimes they couldn't, but sometimes they, very often they could produce, oh, I think it first happened uh, on such and such an occasion when I felt X or I felt Y, okay? And, um, in, and sometimes that seemed to do the trick, but very often it, it, it was disproportionate. Why would you have these intense experiences and feelings that lasted for years afterwards over such a kind of petty incident? Right? It was just unintelligible. Okay? Why would that happen? Um, uh, and then through the process of, of, of therapeutic inquiry, um, uh, further uh, events and experiences. So a whole chain uh, of, of interconnected memories would gradually be uncovered. And what initially is presented in the 1893 paper as a relatively simple cause and effect, you find a symptom, uh, the patient under hypnosis uh, consciously can't remember much about it. Under hypnosis, starts remembering a set of experiences. You've got it. And then the symptom disappears. So that seems to prove the truth of what, of what happened. Uh, in fact, there's this odd clinical experience of the, of the symptom intensifying and then disappearing. And Freud says the symptom takes part in the conversation as the patient moves um, further and further back and, and, and gets to grasp and to relive um, something of that experience, the symptom intensifies and then it gradually fades away after that. And Freud feels, right, got it. Okay, that strange clinical experience proves that I've got the, the causal mechanism for the formation of the symptom. And, that, and then gradually that becomes more and more complicated. Uh, and that's what I'm interested in, is that process of a simple cause and effect find the traumatic event, get them to remember it, and the symptom goes, okay? That gets more and more uh, complicated and more uh, enriched, if you like, and more complex as we move from paper to paper. So we, we're, we're discovering, or Freud is discovering, a time structure, okay? A, a, a complex dimension of traumatic time or tra traumatic temporality uh, that needs enormous amounts of therapeutic patience uh, and time to, to work through, and attention to the minutest of details. Okay? And, a, and a form of listening that is very different from um, uh, hitherto clinical or therapeutic practices in the medical profession of the period. And indeed, uh, Freud's patients tell him, stop questioning me, shut up, and listen to what I have to say. He's dealing with highly educated, quite sophisticated, um, predominantly but not exclusively upper-class Jewish women in Vienna at a certain period. Uh, and and the, the standard medical technique was to, was to ask a series of questions. When did the symptom appear? Uh, tell me this, tell me that, tell me that, etc. And the discourse of the, of the doctor is the dominant one. Okay? And the patient responds to questioning. And in the course of those very early um, clinical um, encounters, Freud, is, Freud falls silent. He learns to Freud, sorry, he learns to fall silent and to listen and to develop a certain way, a certain way of listening to what is being said and what is not being said in particular. And what is not being said, he comes to realize, is acted out silently through symptoms uh, uh, and often through the body, as it were. So what, not, what is not being said, the crucial thing that's not being said, is something that's being acted out. 
and it takes a while for him to realize that. And his patients just say, be quiet, stop asking me questions, listen to what I've got to say. And gradually he moves away from the technique of hypnosis because, he's, as he says rather engagingly, I just found it more and more difficult to do. And I got sick of saying to people, you are falling asleep. And they would say, but doctor, I'm not asleep at all. Uh, and he thought, this is, you know, this is not helpful. It's much more important to get them talking and to listen to what they're not saying, to listen for what is being expressed but not said verbally. Okay, so something's present in the room between the two of us, but it's not being verbally articulated. What is it? What am I not hearing? Well, that might be another way of putting the question. Okay. And the role of emotion, of feeling, of affect is absolutely central. Right? If you like, the toxic nature of intense feelings might be one way of describing what Freud is discovering and gradually exploring in that paper. The whole of section three, I think, is about the after effects of, uh, of, of emotions that have been uh, bottled up, um, blocked off, um, uh, and as it were, um, um, uh, well, the word, he, the word he starts to use is repressed. Okay. And he develops a, a, a model of catharsis. Uh, other technical term he uses is translated into English as abreaction, but it's very similar to the notion, or identical to the notion of catharsis, a sort of expression of purging of feelings that have been bottled up, right, and that belong to uh, a certain set of memories. And he says quite clearly in that paper, um, recollection, remembering without affect, without the emotional dimension, does not, has no effect whatsoever. So it's not just a matter of trying to say, go on, work at it, work at it, you can recall it. It's a question of almost like a kind of reenactment or reliving that takes place in the, in the space of the clinical session. Okay. And that's absolutely central to that, um, <coughs> to, that to, to the 1893 paper. Um, and the forms of connection that take place between um, <coughs> The, the, the traumatic experience and its after effects, um, uh, again, are not just simply causal, um, contiguous ones, but they may take on symbolic form. Okay, like as he says, you learn a certain vocabulary, a symbolic vocabulary, that uh, why is somebody violently vomiting in relation to something that doesn't make anyone else ill? Okay, um, it's, and he's saying it's a kind of a, a form, uh, if you like, a form of, uh, of disgust and of, and of purging something that you've taken in that is, that is revolting. And, this, and you're vomiting, but you don't know why you're vomiting, or you, you don't even quite know what you're vomiting. Okay, but it's not, the, the physical act of vomiting is, is a, is, has an essential psychical or mental dimension to it that has to be decoded. Okay. What is the patient ex trying to expel through their compulsive hysterical vomiting, for instance, would be a, 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 the kind of question. So there's often a symbolic uh, connection of, uh, of a kind like that that is lived out in a very physical way. Um, it's, not, it's not at all cerebral. Okay. Um, Freud draws our attention to, to Charcot's favorite metaphor, of, of these kinds of experiences. Yes, they're important, they're agent provocateur, they reactivate something that's already there. And Freud wants to say, no, um, these things are absolutely central. Um, and they're like a foreign body. The memory acts like a foreign body that has been introduced into, into the mental system and which has been defended against. It's just 
the, the emotions that are, that are associated with the ideas and memory elements of the original traumatic experience, uh, uh, the ego blocks them out. It, it, it refuses to acknowledge them. It's a form of kind of panic, panic defense. This doesn't exist. I don't know about this. Okay. So <clears throat> go along with the notion of trauma and its bottled up, uh, postponed uh, emotional after effects is the notion of defense, of, of a split off part of the mind. Okay. Um, and the ego defending itself against something that is felt to be intolerable, disgusting, shocking, you know, whatever. So defense uh, uh, and a split off part of the mind uh, 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 is absolutely crucial to the living through of traumatic experiences. Um, now, at, at the end of that paper, he makes a quite modest uh, um, sort of uh, delimitation de of, of, of the success of what he and Breuer have, have, have worked out. He says, we can work out the meaning of symptoms, what he's calling in the title the psychical mechanism for the formation of symptoms. But we can't stop new ones from happening. Okay. We, can keep, we can keep interpreting them and getting the patient to, to work through them through. Um, so we, we can address the symptoms, but, we, but we're still puzzled by the underlying condition. Okay. And that's a, an important distinction. Uh, uh, there's something else, an X, an unknown X. And uh, <coughs> Charcot called that unknown X the hereditary predisposition to hysteria. And Freud's very skeptical, increasingly skeptical that that's the case. Uh, but what is it? You know, what is it that keeps, how do we understand this underlying condition that keeps producing more and more symptoms, more and more hysterical attacks uh, of, 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 of uh, kind of like panic attacks, anxiety attacks, suffocation, breathlessness, um, production of hallucinogenic, um, hallucinatory images, like in the case of Katharina, where she sees this violent, angry face. She can't recognize whose, whose face it is. But when she has these attacks of suffocation and anxiety, she's <clears throat> she sees this really angry face. So the question is, what is, what is this underlying X? Uh, so Freud, in a sense, knows, even when he's offering us a relatively simple cause and effect model in the 93 paper with Breuer, that there's something else behind that that neither of them have got to yet. In the paper, in the, in the succession of papers that come after that, uh, one can see it, um, glimpses of it happening in the case studies of Katerina and Miss Luciar, which I want to look at in detail in the, um, in, in, in the seminar. Um, it's, it's much, it emerges much more clearly in the case of Emma. Okay. What, what this X might be, and Freud increasingly thinks it's a, it's a sexual event uh, that has taken place earlier and earlier and earlier. He keeps being forced back into the, um, into the very early years of, uh, of childhood. And of course, at this point, he's working with a notion, uh, which is a common sense notion even to this day in, in, a, in a lot of areas uh, uh, of the culture, uh, that sexuality starts at puberty and that is genitally centered. Okay? And therefore, children can't be sexual, and, and, and yet the symptoms are leading back Earlier to earlier and earlier memories. Um, and so something sexual happened to these uh, naturally unsexual small creatures in their early years. Okay? 
Now this, of course, as we'll discover in a few weeks' time, is to be radically rethought yet again um, uh, with his theory of, of a distinctive form of childhood sexuality, of infantile sexuality, which is initially not at all genitally centered. But at this point, he's then thinking, well, what's, what's been done to them? Uh, and who's done it? Okay. Uh, and so we get the general trauma model being re reformulated as a, uh, as a theory of sexual trauma uh, uh, and uh, what's historically been called the seduction theory. Um, and we see this in the, uh, the paper, the Further Remarks paper of 1896. There's three papers from 1896. I've chosen the one on the Further, the further Remarks on the, on the psychoneuroses because it's got that wonderful case of the paranoid woman in the final section, which I want to look at in the seminars this afternoon as well. Okay. Um, but it sets out this, the, the model of the seduction theory, um, uh, where the after effects of this traumatic living through um, and repetition involves a, you know, a rethinking of, uh, of, the, of the relationship between memory and experience and of the time structure involved. Okay. What he calls um, in German, and there's a problem about how it's been translated, Nachträglichkeit. Um, okay. Now, it, it literally would mean, Nach uh, means after. Trey comes from the German Träger, me meaning to carry or to bear. Okay. Uh, and this is just the abstract noun, N-E-S-S in English. Okay. Carrying afterness would be a literal translation of the German term, and there's a whole family of terms, Nachträglich, Nachträglichkeit, etc., that Freud uses. It's been translated in the standard edition as deferred action. And various people have pointed out a problem that that's a one-way temporal dimension uh, where you move from the past to the present to the future. Whereas, and that, that leaves out the opposite dimension, which is the action of the of the in the opposite direction, as it were, the action of the uh, <coughs> of the present back onto the onto and on the past, the reformulation of past experiences, the reactivation of past experiences in a later moment. So there's a two-way temporal movement there, which the English translation, uh, if you defer something, you put it off to a later date in English, don't you? And it hasn't got that retroactive dimension to it, which is uh, and the. Uh, French analyst Jean Laplanche, who translates Freud from German into French, has um, <coughs> suggested in an English term which various people have, have taken up uh, in recent years. Sounds a bit odd at first, but I think it's, it's quite a good... It captures something of the, of the, of the German. Afterwardsness. There should be an S there. Afterwardsness, which is much closer to the German, and it enables that double temporal dimension of forward movement, backward movement, Okay. Um, and it's something like that in the time structure, okay, that Freud has discovered. Um, and it's puzzled over because it suggests that something, something has an intense effect as a memory that it didn't have the first time around as an experience. And that's a puzzle. Okay? And it doesn't happen uh, in a lot of areas of experience, but it does happen, he says, in the area of sexuality. What is it about sexuality that it may, leaves itself open to this, this strange combination of reactivation and repression? Okay. And his first answer is, well, it's because sexuality itself kicks in late at puberty. He's later to kind of completely change his mind about that. In the papers we're looking at, that's his assumption. 
right? The, the delayed uh, uh, process of puberty um, <clears throat> enables things to happen beforehand then then get reactivated on the other side of puberty and suddenly have a, a sexual effect that they didn't have the first time around. Okay. That's, that's, and that produces all forms of defensiveness and panic uh, and, uh, and uh, a range of symptoms. And he's gradually kind of trying to come to terms with, with, with that. Um, uh, and that's in the Emma case in particular, that's what he's, he's puzzling over. Now, I want to, um, one of the things I'm interested in in this course is, and, it's, and it's, in a way, it, it's, it, it's the basis for why is psychoanalysis a form of, of psychological theory that has been taken up in literary studies in a way that other forms of psychological theory haven't been. Right? And that's because Freud finds it, he began as a hardline physicalist cutting up small animals on glass slides in laboratories, okay? And as he said, he finds himself writing stories, narratives, right? Clinical uh, no novels. How did this come? How did this happen? Because he's concerned with um, things like fantasy, uh, unconscious fantasy, um, unconscious ideas, uh, with feelings and the strange property of, uh, of feelings, their capacity for being displaced from one thing to another. Uh, from A to B to C to D, you suddenly start having intense feelings about something that appears to be completely unrelated to the feelings. How has that happened? Okay. Uh, and so in a sense, and, if, uh, and in particular, you'll see again and again in these texts of Freud, it goes right through, through his work, but it's very noticeable in these early texts, he's talking about scenes. So-and-so produced a scene in which, okay, uh, and I've taken a term from film theory and film studies, scenography. Freud, in effect, becomes a scenographer uh, against his whole formation and training as a hard-line physicalist, right, looking for physical causes to explain mental events. And he finds himself mapping, like a scenographer, uh, scenes in which highly charged things happen. And he starts having to ask questions, you know, where is the patient in the scene there? And often they're not, they're scenes that are not so much being remembered, the patient acts out a scene. And Freud tries to say, you seem to be doing this. You seem to be acting out that. And they say, I have no memory of that whatsoever. So he's faced with forms of repetition, of at times hallucinatory reenactment. And when he puts it to the patient, initially after hypnosis, but he drops hypnosis pretty, pretty quickly, um, you, this is what seems to be happening. And the patient says, I have no memory of that whatsoever. So he comes to the conclusion that, as it were, acting out, what he calls acting out, is a substitute for remembering, okay, an alternative to remembering, con to conscious memory. Something has been inscribed, uh, and it expresses itself through a kind of amnesiac acting out. Okay? But it's a really, how do you conceptualize that? How do you understand that? How do you deal with it if somebody is in a, in a really emotionally disturbed state? you know, in your consulting room, okay? Um, so it's both a clinical, which is to say a human, and an existential problem. How, what do I do with this person suffering? Um, uh, and the emotional violence of it, sometimes even the physical violence of it. Um, <clears throat> and how do I conceptualize it? How do I explain it? What are the appropriate concepts for, for grasping and understanding this? Okay. I want to end by talking about a particular example. I sent it to you 
uh, I, I should have thought to, to have included it at the beginning, but it came to me later on because I'm writing about it at the moment. This is a, a really vivid example of what he's talking about. And that's that letter, uh, right, where he talks about uh, a female patient remembering something. Okay? And I sent that to you a couple of last week, I think. Did people get that? Yes? Now, I want to, I want to talk about that um, for the next 10, 10 or 15 minutes, that, that, um, that experience, because it's such a powerful and such a strange experience. And it's really, in a way, the anomaly and paradoxical nature of it is, is what this course is, is about in some ways. Okay. Um, so this is, and the date of this is important. I'm, I'm going to read you one short piece and then the piece I sent you. Um, <clears throat> this is taking place, um, well, the first one is taking place uh, in January 1897, um, before he writes his letter to his, his friend Fleece saying, I don't think I believe my theory. It's just, I can't, you know, I don't, there's all these reasons for why I can't believe it anymore. So he, he, and that's in September 97. He, he goes through a period of abandoning it but then he keeps going back to it because the experiences he's having with patients keep putting it on the agenda again. So January 97, before he writes this letter of, of repudiation, he, he writes to his friend Fleece, the early period before the age of one and a quarter years is becoming ever more significant. Thus I was able to trace back with certainty a hysteria that developed in the context of a periodic mild depression. Uh, I could trace it back to a seduction which occurred for the first time at 11 months. And I could hear again the words that were exchanged between two adults at that time. It is as though it comes from a phonograph. So he's really puzzled by this, right? So some patient has, has, has acted out in the, in the session um, something, and he's trying to describe what is being acted out here and where, who are the two voices that seem to be speaking here? You know, and, he's, and he does a lot of um, uh, contextual work. You know, he contacts relatives. He tries to find out when such and such an event might possibly have happened, in what house were they living at the time, etc., etc. He tries to do a lot of work of that kind. Um, so he's, but what's interesting about that is I could hear again the words that were exchanged between the two adults at that time. It is as though it comes from a phonograph. And that, that is very strange. And he finds it very strange. Okay. Now, it's strange because, not just because the, that early child sexual abuse would have uh, extraordinary after effects. That, no surprise about that. What's surprising is, um, is that what he's talking about is not so much the after effect of a causal event that is back there in the past, okay, um, as something that's in the present, so an event that seems to be taking place now in the present moment. Um, okay, uh, it takes the form of an adult dialogue that could not, in this case, could not have been understood, let alone remembered in any conscious, ordinary sense of the word, by an infant of 11 months. Nevertheless, Freud claims a dialogue is reproduced with such vividness, quotes, it's as though it came from a phonograph. And we are told uh, in the same letter that this person came into a analysis as a case of epileptiform convulsions. That is to say, somebody who is prone to convulsions that look like epilepsy but aren't epilepsy. Okay. So in, this, in, a, in one of these convulsive attacks, these, these voices, this dialogue, this conversation starts being reenacted. And Freud's thinking, good heavens, what am I hearing here? Okay. But what I, what I want to talk about is the emphasis is less on the auditory and more on the visual. In a, a kind of tableau, 
And that's that letter I sent you last week, uh, the extract from the letter, rather. Okay, I'll read it out. Uh, the intrinsic authenticity of infantile trauma is borne out by the... And, and the interesting thing about this letter is on the other side of... Um, it's December, I think, 97. So it's three months on from him saying, I don't believe my trauma theory anymore. It's just unbelievable that, that these, this level of child abuse could have taken place, uh, uh, that this level of perversion on the part of adults could take place. I, I can't believe it, he says to his friend. And then three months later, he's telling him this extraordinary story, clinical story. <laughs> He says, the, the intrinsic authenticity of infantile trauma is borne out by the following little incident, which the patient claims to have observed as a three-year-old child. So it's quite a complex narrative. She goes into a darkened room where her mother is carrying on and eavesdrops on her mother. She has good reasons for identifying with this mother. And I, I cut out the time being what those reasons are. I'll mention them later. The mother now stands in this darkened room and shouts, rotten criminal, what do you want from me? I will have no part of that. Just whom do you think you have in front of you? The mother then tears the clothes from her own body with one hand, while with the other she presses the clothes against her body, which creates a very peculiar impression for the child. Then she stares at a certain spot in the room, her face contorted by rage. She covers her genitals with one hand and pushes something away with the other hand. Then she raises both hands, claws at the air and bites it. Shouting and cursing, she bends over far backward. Again, she covers her genitals with her hand, whereupon she falls over forward so that her head almost touches the floor. Finally, she falls quietly over backwards onto the floor. Afterwards, she wrings her hand, sits down in a corner, and her features are distorted with pain, and she weeps. For the child, the most conspicuous phase is when the mother, standing up, is bent over forward. She sees that the mother keeps her toes strongly turned inward. So this is a child's observation. What on earth is mother doing? And look at the funny physical things she's doing. Okay. Now, Freud's reason for retelling this terrible scene is he thinks it confirms what he had doubted, the authenticity of infantile trauma and of the perverse and orphan violence scenes that featured in many of his analyses and which he personally found rather disturbing. Um, three moments are linked together here. It's a quite complex time structure. The enigmatic tableau that the mother enacts by herself in a darkened room and on which the small child, a three-year-old, um, uncomprehendingly stumbles. She doesn't understand what's going on, but she notices certain things very vividly. Behind this scene in the darkened room, there's a shadowy, and I use a later Freudian term, primal scene, a shadowy primal scene behind the frozen moment of the mother's tableau. And then there's a third moment, which is its persistence and retelling now in the present moment of the analysis by the adult daughter who remembers what she saw when she was three years old. So it's quite a complicated thing, okay? We have a, a narrative being told to Freud by an adult woman who's saying, I saw this strange thing uh, when I was three. My mother, my mother was doing these very odd things in a darkened room and, while I watched her. And the mother's acting out a scene, which itself clearly references something else, because there's no one else there. Okay? So she's shouting out and appears to be locked in some kind of physical action and reaction with, with some shadowy uh, absent person. So there's that other scene, and we don't know what it is. Okay. 
And a fourth moment could be postulated, indeed, which Freud's retelling this narrative to his friend Fleece. He needs to pass it on. He needs to sort of tell somebody. He can't just hold it in his own mind because it's so distressing. Okay. So it's, it seems to sort of put again on the agenda um, this question of the status of these events, in inverted commas, that are being ena enacted at l in later moments. There is more to the letter than, however, a move in a theoretical debate. And it's, <coughs> it's driven by Freud's need to pass this scene on, this very haunting scene on. The scene in the darkened room remembered by the adult daughter is the mother's acting out of a, rather, of a frozen tableau. Uh, it's got an arrested or fixated quality about it. Something's being repeated by the mother that one feels has been repeated many times before. This is something that, that takes possession of her and then she just is compelled to act out by herself, like a compulsive ritual of some kind. In her solitude, the mother is nevertheless not alone, for she addresses and she cries out against an absent presence. And the small witness, three-year-old witness, doesn't understand what's happening. Her attention is drawn, however, to certain conspicuous details, uh, such as her mother's toes turned strongly inward, or to the hands which both tear off and, and push back the clothes on her own body. So the mother's postures and, and gestures are enigmatic signs whose meanings are not verbalized, they're not spoken, but they're acted out. And they seem to belong elsewhere, to another scene, an enigmatic other scene, uh, whose violence shadows this repetitive tableau in the darkened room, uh, and where those puzzling signs would regain their lost meaning if we knew where and how to replace them. They're being displaced from some other scene. Freud comments on the foreclosure of meaning here by comparing it, he says at the end of the letter, to the Russian censorship exercised over foreign newspapers at the frontier. Words, whole clauses and sentences are blacked out so that the rest becomes unintelligible. By analogy, Freud argues, a Russian censorship of th that kind comes about in psychoses and hysterias and produces this apparently meaningless deliria. But there is a meaning if one, lear if one learns how to listen to it, to listen to what is not being verbalized so much as what is being enacted. Okay. And of course, it's re there's a relay here. Okay, it, it, it's relayed through the, un, the incomprehension of a small child and it's lived on in that small child's mind into adulthood and she feels compelled to, to, uh, to rehearse it all um, uh, years later. Freud attempts to read this tableau and its meanings through the gaze of the child and the retrospective narrative of the grown-up patient. Um, and his way of understanding it is partly derived from his argument with Charcot about uh, trauma and hysteria. Freud says, can one doubt that the father forces the mother to submit to anal intercourse? Can one not recognize in the mother's attack the separate phases of the assault? First, the attempt to get at her from the front, then pressing her down from the back and penetrating between her legs, which forced her to turn her feet inwards. Finally, how does the patient know that in attacks when you, hysterical attacks, one usually enacts both persons, self-injury, self-murder, as occurred here, in that the woman tears off her clothes with one hand, like the assailant, and with the other holds onto them, as she herself did at the time. So the apparent meaninglessness, the incoherence of the mother's distraught behavior, her speech to a hallucinated other person, makes sense for Freud as the reproduction of an earlier scene of sexual violence, of marital assault, 
which he reconstructs through its repetitions, through the relays uh, uh, and layers of its transmission, okay, from, from three people, as it were. Um, now, what governs Freud's selection of the clinical material for retelling in this letter to his friend, I think, is a, is, is, is a concern with the authenticity of this traumatic tableau witnessed by the child and its relation to its hidden other scene. So Freud reads the mother's postures as signs of a particular form of adult sexual assault, which, the child, which would be unintelligible to the child. Even more telling for Freud are the mother's gestures, so striking and peculiar, which exemplify a crucial fact about the processes of identification, identifying with the aggressor, which occur in, in, in an hysterical attack. And he, as he puzzles over this, how does the patient know that in hysterical attacks one usually enacts both persons? So there's something about what she's told him that just rings true. There's a kind of knowledge which the patient doesn't know they have, so to speak, which is betraying itself in some way. Um, okay. So, and it's that, it's that, I use a term from literary scholarship, it's like a palimpsest. You know, a palimpsest is a manuscript that has, has something written over it, uh, and, and, and when, when people find this ancient manuscript, you know, they pick apart the layers in which the writing is partly being scrubbed out and other writing has been put out over it. And that's what one's got here. One's got an imposition of scenes, one scene on another, a moment of retelling, uh, uh, refracting an earlier moment of, uh, of visual observation, which itself re repeats a scene that nobody knows about except, except the, the woman herself. Okay. Uh, and so it's that layered nature of, of what I'm calling a kind of Freudian scenography. Um, something is being enacted but not verbalized. How do we listen to it? How do we reconstruct it? What are, what are the clues? What, what's, what's guiding us? In a, in, in a form of listening that would in some ways enable the patient to come to terms with what's happened. Okay. Uh, so it's that element of, of what I'm calling scenography, I think, that connects it up with literature and with art more generally. And Freud writes about Leonardo's paintings. Um, psychoanalysts uh, are interested in a range of forms of, of cultural uh, rep repetition and reproduction. Uh, <coughs> because they deal with something similar. They deal with intense feelings, they deal with uh, fantasy in particular, uh, and the role of fantasy is something that becomes more and more crucial to Freud. He's just gradually realizing uh, that, fa that fantasy may play a role in this. Uh, and, when he f uh, and, and initially, well, he's, he's got two different reactions to the notion of fantasy, which is so important for us as, uh, as readers of literature. Um, he's torn in two directions by fantasy, because of course scientists are very un happy with notions of fantasy because it can compromise their, the purity of their data. Um, and Freud initially says, oh goodness, how do I know that these scenes aren't all made up by the patients? It's all fantasy. Right? Um, and therefore, that's when he writes his letter to Fleece and says, I don't think I believe this, you know, because you know, I can't believe that people are, that, 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 that adult and particularly parental perversion is as widespread as that. And, and how do I know it's not all fantasy? Now, the other reaction is to say, actually, it's precisely through fantasy and through the analysis of fantasy that we can get some understanding on what is not being remembered. In other words, fantasy is a crucial component of our model for understanding trauma because it's precisely through the production of fantasies in later moments that the original trauma is being processed and both dealt with and not dealt with at the same time. 
Okay. So he's got that, that split reaction to fantasy. Oh, fantasy just compromises the data, and I can't believe my theory anymore. Um, and you get a polarization between fantasy and the real event. Okay. Or a more complex understanding, which is actually fantasy is part, an essential part of the way in which people survive trauma. But of course, it keeps the trauma still active at the same time. Um, and I, 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 I'll give you a, 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 a current example. Um, in, a, in a very interesting book on hysteria, who revives the category um, uh, uh, by Elaine Showalter, who's a literary critic, feminist literary critic. And she's done a lot of work on a whole range of uh, conditions in contemporary America. She says, the, of the large number of people who report forms of sexual abuse, the biggest category are those who claim to be abused by aliens. Okay, that they were sexually abused by aliens landing in spacecrafts. Now, how do you understand that? You can say, oh, they're idiots. They've been watching too much you know, uh, uh, um, uh, television uh, and that X Factor or whatever. Now, what, what was it called? What was it? X Files, not X Factor. <laughs> X Files, right? Um, uh, or you can say, this is a way of trying to make sense of something traumatic that has happened to them that they can't tolerate thinking about. Uh, and so they form a narrative. And of course, where do you take your, for your narratives from? From the dominant narratives in your culture. And particularly in America, and particularly in the last decade or so, paranoid fantasies about the FBI or the federal government or uh, in league with aliens or whatever it might be, those kinds of paranoid social and political narratives are very, very dominant. Okay? Like 9-11 uh, never happened. It was all fabricated visually. Okay, or uh, it was all staged by the CIA in order to invade Iraq or, or whatever. And you can't, you can't believe the huge numbers of people who really do believe those forms of para paranoid narratives. Now, you can just dismiss them and say they're idiots. Or you can say, what is, being, what is happening when people produce this kind of mad paranoid narrative? Okay, that so many people process traumatic experience by saying, it was aliens who did it to me. How do you interpret that? That's, that's the conundrum in a sense. It's both a theoretical challenge, but it's also a clinical and existential problem for Freud, because he's dealing with human suffering. Right? The, 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 the distresses that people bring to him in his consulting room. So it's this, got this double dimension to it, as it were. Um, and so he, he's got this very ambiguous attitude initially. Fantasy calls into question everything because it compromises my data, and I haven't got the real event. Or actually, fantasy is a crucial after effect of living through and of both surviving and not surviving at the same time traumatic experience. Okay, let's, I'll finish there. <laughs>